Greetings and welcome to the Fiby, your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode starts with Ruel Gaviola, making us an offer we can't refuse in The Godfather, A New Dawn. The play's the thing for Lindsay and Shakespeare. Mason digs up a few reasons why you should take a look at Colbert. I'll tell you why I think Bottom of the Ninth is a solid hit. And last but certainly not least, will Pandemic Legacy Season 2 pass the dreaded sequel test for Sarah? Let's find out. Hello, Five By listeners. This is Ruel Gaviola. Let's check out The Godfather, A New Dawn, designed by Jay Cormier and Sen Fung Lim and published by IDW Games in 2016. The Godfather, A New Dawn, is a dice placement area control game for three to six players that takes up to 45 minutes to play. You and your opponents represent one of the six crime families in New York attempting to take over the city. One player is randomly chosen as the Godfather, and everyone gets a fistful of dice, soldier meeples, and a player screen. The dice determine whether you'll place soldiers onto the map of New York, recruit muscle, or gamble in Las Vegas. A round of play consists of five phases. First, the Godfather rolls and distributes the Vegas dice. Next, everybody rolls their dice behind their screens and chooses one die as a favor to the Godfather. Now, the Godfather accepts each player's favor or makes an offer by calling for a particular number. If the player has it, they must give it to the Godfather. In either case, a player will gain a special ability to compensate for a lost die. Players may then re-roll their dice. Most of the action takes place during the fourth phase. Everybody resolves their dice in player order, starting with the Godfather, and the Godfather is limited to using their dice to claim neighborhoods. To claim a neighborhood, you match your dice to that location's requirements. Most are pairs or sets of three or four dice. Some are straights that require a certain number. For example, to take over Murray Hale, I need three dice in a row with a number two in it, such as one, two, three, or two, three, four. Meanwhile, the other players may use their dice to claim neighborhoods, use special abilities, move up the muscle track, or gamble in Vegas. In the cleanup phase, whoever's the highest on the muscle track becomes the new godfather. Then refresh dice and start a new round. When one or more districts is full of soldiers, or if a player has no more soldiers, then the game ends. Each district yields various points for the players with the most soldiers in them. Most points wins. The Godfather, A New Dawn, reminds me of a next step version of the classic Rudiger Dorn dice game, Las Vegas. It takes the simple dice rolling mechanism and, like Las Vegas, attaches an area control element to it. While the goal of the game is to control the most neighborhoods in each district, it's much more than simply rolling your dice and placing soldier meeples on the board. Sometimes, you'll want to move onto the muscle tracks since this helps you in two different ways. You can muscle your opponents out of neighborhoods that you want. So, if you have a set of dice that's blocked by someone, you can send them into the Hudson as you take over. It'll also give you the power to be Godfather on future turns. Or you can gamble in Vegas by using your dice to put a soldier in Vegas, which are six spots corresponding to the big chunky Vegas dice. This is for those dice that you have nothing to do with. Simply take a soldier and put it on whatever your lucky number is, and hope that the Godfather rolls it during the next turn. If they do, then you'll have extra dice for that turn. I love having all of these options. Not only do you have more decisions every round, there are plenty of ways to mitigate bad dice rolls. I also love the interaction during the offer phase, when you give a die to the Godfather as a favor. It's a neat little cat and mouse game of trying to pawn off your bad dice on them, or giving them something that doesn't help them too much. What I really appreciate about the offer phase, though, are the special abilities you gain when you lose a die. While your soldiers may be sleeping with the fishes in the middle of the Hudson River, they do grant you the power to re-roll your dice, add or subtract one pip, 
duplicate a die, and more. And after they do, they'll rejoin your gang and be ready to go back to work in the neighborhoods. So being Godfather isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Yes, you get to go first, and you get others' dice, but you don't get the additional abilities or to increase your muscle on your turn, or place a bet in Vegas. I liked how this is balanced. There are advantages to playing either side, and games will usually feature multiple Godfathers. Ultimately, though, the theme is slapped on. You're simply rolling dice, and it could have been anything, from a western to a space motif, and that's perfectly fine by me. Like my favorite Godfather board game, Simon's Corleone's Empire, it's more of a generic mafia theme than one that recalls the movies. You're not hiring Luca Brasi to infiltrate Salazzo's gang. You're not Clemenza telling Rocco to leave the gun and take the cannoli. But the game does have enough gangsterish play to keep you in character, especially when you're offering dice to the Godfather. I've been known to tell my opponents that it's business, not personal, whenever I muscle into one of their neighborhoods. Finally, I agree with the main criticism of this game, which has been its graphic design, especially in the colors used on the board. They're all muted tones and grays, with no easily discernible lines to separate the six districts. While I get what IDW was going for here, with its throwback to the color palette of the original films, it's a pain trying to quickly see what neighborhoods are being controlled by you and your opponents. It's the biggest letdown in an otherwise solid game. The Godfather, A New Dawn, is an underrated dice roller and area control game that's had a good response whenever I bring it to the table. It's simple enough to use as a gateway for new players, but has enough strategy to keep more seasoned gamers interested. Thanks for listening. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, it's Lindsay here. And this episode, I'm bringing you a little bit of Shakespeare, designed by Hervé Regal, published by Yastari Games, with artwork by Arnold Demagd and Neriak. It's a wonderful play game with a 20 to 90 minute duration play count depending. This is the second time we've had Shakespeare on the show, as Sarah covered it in episode 13. So feel free to head back and check that out if you want to hear any further thoughts from Sarah. I first bought and played Shakespeare in 2015, and I can say with certainty I still enjoy it as much today as I did then. This is a nice medium-weight Euro-style game that I don't think fits neatly into a category. It's not described as worker placement, but I think there's an element there. It is categorised as action point allowance, and you're bidding return order with some card drafting and little set collections thrown in, which kind of makes it sound like a mechanical mishmash, but it actually plays out very smoothly. So in Shakespeare, you have six acts, which are your rounds. This is where players recruit actors and stagehands. You bid for turn order with wooden cylinders, and these become your action markers to use each round. You spend these to activate your recruits, and after each act, the recruits rest except for one of your choice, which means they are unable to activate on the next turn. Points are based on the prestige and initiative tracks. You have dress rehearsals, rounds five and six, and this is the time to use your actors for their ability, but only if they are fully costumed for obvious reasons. You also have an ambience track on your player board which is determined by your success at the end of each round. The player with the most points on the prestige track wins the game. There are a few aspects of Shakespeare that I really enjoy and have kept me playing over the past few years. One is how friendly the game is in terms of playing and competing. It's brain friendly and provides a very decent game that has some light strategy but without mind crippling decision making. There's no major conflict or heavy competition, it's almost like a multiplayer solitaire but with little interaction. Having said that, there's some balance to bear in mind and lots to achieve, which I love, and it provides a gentle alternative to the usual conflict-heavy take-that-games that I enjoy. I'd say there's a small amount of conflict, which I can imagine becomes more apparent with the higher player count. 
I like there's no randomness in the game. You're very much in control of what you do in your six rounds. And I absolutely fly past. What this game provides for me the most is replayability. Because you really can't achieve it all in one game. And if you try to, you may very well find yourself at a loss. I've scored better when I've focused on one or two areas. Like I'll recruit the accomplished stagehands, make my set a mini masterpiece. And get some very accomplished actors and dress them to the nines. But really, the most important factor is climbing up the initiative tracks. And again, although it's good to focus on one or two you don't want to neglect one in the process because this could really have you losing precious points at the end of the dress rehearsals in the game there's also an expansion backstage i recommend if you're already a fan it's an expansion that isn't necessarily needed but it's very useful if you've played the base game often and it's literally just a deck of cards that adds on extra actors and recruits and provide alternative routes to possible victory and further objectives to aim for. I like that the characters and stagehands have different abilities to the regular cards. Even just a little thing, for example, a hatter means that you can kit out your actors in hats as well as clothing. It just changes the rules a little slightly in the recruitment stage, so you have to choose whether to save your bidding and action cylinders for actions or to recruit a backstage card. I've definitely had fun playing with backstage included, but in some ways it almost gives you too much to do. The Shakespeare theme isn't terribly heavy in my opinion, nor does it have many thematic Shakespearean qualities, which I thought I'd be disappointed with, but I'm really not. But that's not to say I wouldn't have liked to see a little more. We do have some thematic touches pertaining to us creating a production. The actors need to be in costumes, have more leverage. The higher value costume, the more points you score. The set must be built correctly, you can't just lay tiles any old hell, and the higher value pieces mean a better set and higher points. And the puzzle of creating the set is almost like a mini game in itself. I love building my set and I'm extremely uncomfortable when I don't complete it, which definitely says something about my character. Whilst I think the game could be a little more thematic, it's pretty cool in that it's entirely language independent, with mostly colour and icons used to guide. I would like to hear thoughts on accessibility in terms of colour blindness, but the largest array of colours in the dress and set pieces also use numbers as well, which I imagine would be a great assistance. It's also a very pretty game, the artwork is superbly vivid, I love the amount of detail in the cards, and it's definitely one of those games I just love to look at. And the components, low not fancy, are good quality, and after many players are still in great condition. I would very much like to have a deluxe version of the game with prettier and fancier components, and honestly, it's a good enough game not to need something like that. I'm just being whimsical, and I wish it existed. I also had no idea up till the time of recording that it actually has a solo variant, and I'm kicking myself for not realising sooner. Whilst it's too late to give you my thoughts on the solo game, I will definitely play and discuss on either my website or my YouTube channel. So Shakespeare, a game of healthy competition, planning and light strategy with lots to achieve and much fun to be had, especially if you like to play the game of guessing who the characters are and what play they're from and brushing up on a little bit of Shakespeare to get you feeling fancy. It's pretty, it's charming and it's highly replayable and I intend to carry on bringing it to the table. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my YouTube and Instagram where I'm Shiny Happy Meeples. You can go on my website, shinyhappymeeplesco.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, capital M, Meeples, capital C, Co. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Coal Baron. It's been a while since I talked about a straight-up Euro-style resource management game, even though I love them. Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling have put out a lot of Euro games, both together and separately in the last 30 years, have won and continue to win tons of awards, and in many ways I think are responsible for our baseline measurements of what a Euro game really even is. Cole Baron, published by Egbert Spiel in 2013, is a near-perfect archetype of Euro games. There are cubes you move around to get points, contracts to fill, and both end-of-round and end-of-game scoring. The theme is dry as stale saltines, 
The art is brownish and dull, though flawlessly executed, and it is filled with pictures of old-fashioned men doing work. In Coal Baron, it's the dawn of the Industrial Age, of course, and you're some wealthy fat cat mine owner, of course, and you're trying to squeeze the most out of your workers, of course. Despite the subject being a total snoozer, Coal Baron's actually highly thematic. Your player board has an elevator, and the central objective here is to move coal, yeah, of course, the coal is colored cubes, from down in the mine to fill all the contracts, of course, up on the surface. In the late 90s, Cromer and Kiesling got heavily into making games that used action points. Basically, on your turn, you had 10 or so points to use to take any of the available actions. Move a piece, flip a tile, place a cube, stuff like that. Their Mask trilogy from that era, uh, Tikal, Mexica, and Java, all use some form of action points. I should probably talk about Tikal at some point because it's really good and still worth your time almost 20 years after it won the Spiel de Jar. Coal Baron is a worker placement game that just makes one of your options to use those action points. That's sort of a dumb sentence if you're not a super serious board gamer, sorry. On the main board, there are a bunch of spaces that let you do stuff. Take a card, dig a tunnel, go to the bank, ship some coal, etc, etc. In a lot of worker placement games, you have a set of discs or pawns, and you take turns with other players placing your pawns on the slots and using the slots' actions. Some people call this action drafting instead of worker placement, but those people are wrong and should stop talking about board games. The key difference in Coal Baron is that there's no blocking of spaces. Let's say I have one of my little workers on the the go-to-the-bank-and-get-six-money spaces. You can still go there, but you have to push my pawn off and replace it with two of yours. On my next turn, I could go there again by pushing your two off and replacing them with three of mine. It's almost like a bizarro revolving silent auction every round, but it works so beautifully and is so intuitive I want to play more games that use it. I think Coal Baron, if you can get past the theme, is probably a solid choice for someone's introduction to resource management Euro games. All of the systems here interconnect perfectly, so there's plenty of push-pull tension between the players and the game's constraints, as well as between the players themselves, without really any direct interaction or any direct conflict. In a game like Agricola or Russian Railroads, I often wish I had just one more turn to get the things that I need. But in Coal Baron, you're more often cursing your earlier self for spending too many workers on an action that you only thought you really needed. I found it easy to learn from the rulebook, and though it's not overly complex, there's more than enough going on to keep me engaged in wanting to play it over and over. Cromer and Kiesling have been making games long enough that nothing in Coal Baron feels tacked on or shoved in, and there are no, oh, but except for this one thing, rules to patch some gaping hole in their design. In the last few years, there's been an unfortunate trend where players are mistaking complexity for depth, and it depresses me especially when complexity is held up as some kind of design paragon. A game doesn't need a 40-page rulebook to be good or deep or difficult or replayable. Good games shouldn't be hard to learn. Coal Baron is a good game. Dennis Lohausen's art should be familiar to a lot of our listeners. He's illustrated some of the most popular Euro games of the last several years. Marco Polo, A Feast for Odin, Glass Road, Village, Rajas of the Ganges, and a lot more. My one complaint about the art in Coal Baron, besides it all looking very, very brown, is that the game depicts exclusively men, and I'm just endlessly bored with this trope. But Mason, you say, it's about 19th century German coal mining. Wasn't everyone involved in that a man? Um, I don't know, and I don't really care. I would suspect not in reality. But it's not a historical document. It's a competitive abstraction to amuse and delight hobbyists. There aren't any characters in the game. All the people are just figures hanging out on the board for decoration. Make some of them women. Make some of them not white. The game already ignores the fact that a significant number of coal miners in the 19th century were children under 12, so why not go one step farther and actually make it inclusive? It's not a reason not to buy the game, but it is something to think about if you're designing or publishing board games. Boxing components here are great, as they always are with Eggerspiel titles. R&R put out the North American version of Coal Baron, but they usually co-print these titles, so all of the editions are functionally the same. This game could have fit in a smaller box, but Eggerspiel uses square ticket-to-ride-size boxes for pretty much everything, so I don't really mind. 
There is a Colbert in the card game as well, but I haven't played it and I can't comment, though a number of other people I know and trust seem to enjoy it. Colbert retails at around $35, and I think is an excellent use of your Eurogame funds and shelf space. So, who should buy Colbert? People who already love dry Eurogames. People who think they might like dry Eurogames, but have been afraid to try them. People who want to push cubes around for an hour. And people who are big fans of 19th century German coal mining. I give Colbert 4 out of 4 Gluck Alfs. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Growing up in St. Louis and Cincinnati in the late 70s to early 80s, I was a big baseball fan. Going to Reds games was a treat, and though likely because it was more rare, going to Cardinals games in Bush Stadium and seeing Ozzie Smith in person was a real treat. To this day, I still can't sit down with a bowl full of fresh spring cherries and not think of watching Cardinals games on the TV with my long-departed grandpa. And while I later stopped following America's pastime after moves to more baseball-devoid places, some things still do trigger that nostalgia. So when a friend told me about Bottom of the Ninth, I knew I needed to check it out. In Bottom of the Ninth, you are literally playing the bottom of the ninth inning of a baseball game. The score is tied and the home team is at bat. One player is the pitcher and the other plays as the team at bat. The pitcher has two-sided tokens to choose where they'll put their pitch, high or low, inside or out. The batter then tries to guess. The pitcher then rolls two die to see what kind of pitch it ends up being, ball, strike, or corner. And the batter rolls to see if they swing, hit, or miss the ball. And that's really the gist of the game. What makes the game more interesting is that each pitcher has different abilities, a special pitch, and can modify their pitch if they fool the batter with one or both of their pitch location tokens. The batters each similarly have special abilities and can modify their role based on if they guess one or both of the pitch location tokens. Yes, you may still strike out if you guess where the pitch is going, but you have a much greater chance of controlling the outcome of that pitch if you can get inside the pitcher's head and know where she's going to throw the ball. But don't worry, even if you can't get in the head of your opponent, there's still luck involved. You could roll the perfect pitch, or the perfect hit. And all that planning and mental double and triple bluffing just goes out the window, as you both race to see who can roll a 5 or 6 first to either throw out the runner or reach the base and be safe. Okay, now that your heart is racing, you check for the win conditions. Was that the third and final out, or did a runner make it to the home plate? No? Well, then start over. I really appreciate the attention to detail in the game. The art by Adam McIver is fantastic and very retro, taking on the style of old baseball cards. Even the cardboard strips for tracking strikes and balls looks like the practically cardboard chewing gum that you get in your baseball card packs. There's even the fun of seeing some familiar faces, though yes, I am petty enough that I'll play with or avoid certain people that I know. And while I wish there were more people of color, it is at least nice to see a decent representation of women in a baseball game, without having some lame softball type expansion. Anyway, back to details. I like how the pitcher has a fatigue tracker for their specialized pitch type, so that each time they use part or all of that pitch type, like high or inside, they become more fatigued and eventually once those pitch types get locked out, become easier to predict. You can alleviate your fatigue if you struck out or walked a batter. Further, before the game even starts, you set your lineup with pitcher and a reliever and six batter cards. But as in a real game, you can't double up and have two players of any one position in your lineup. The position listings on the hitters is otherwise meaningless except for this thematic tie-in. Daryl Louder and Mike Mullins have worked a few different ways to play bottom of the ninth into the game. The base game, longer games, solo games, and advanced games. And there's even an expansion that adds equipment, owners, and more players. The expansion also takes care of my earlier complaint about the lack of individuals of color, and also includes a lot more women. 
Thank you for that dice hate me. The pitcher and hitter packs even come in foil packs. What a great touch. So, clearly bottom of the ninth hits a lot of things right for me. It's straight in my nostalgia wheelhouse. It's quick, it benefits from knowing your opponent as you try to outthink them. It's straightforward enough that I can play with my enthusiastic 7-year-old with minimal suggestions. And with the expansion, at this point the pitcher and hitter combinations are near limitless. And for those who do mobile gaming, there's an iOS and Android version of the game that works very well for both player versus player and player versus AI. I love that they keep the meeples in the app. The only real issue is that it's two-player only, and really that's a stretch because I have no idea how you would do this with multiple players. I just wish I could play with more people. So that's bottom of the ninth, a fun little in the head of your opponent, but ultimately it comes down to the dice rolls baseball game. I'm so glad I was able to get a copy and that Dice Hate Me Games and Greater Than Games is continuing to support it. If you have any questions or comments about bottom of the ninth or anything else, you can reach me on Twitter at MikeRizzly. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is hard to review, not just because of spoilers. And don't worry, this review is 100% spoiler-free. I'll talk freely about things you would know when you opened the box before you played your first game. Anything else, I'll discuss only in general terms. If even that's too spoilery for you, feel free to skip ahead five minutes. On the other hand, if you've finished the campaign too and want to discuss spoilers, look me up on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. We can swap war stories. In any case, besides avoiding spoilers, this is also a difficult review because so much of my experience of Pandemic Legacy, both Season 2 and Season 1 before it, is about the campaign as an experience rather than about game mechanisms. I wasn't even expecting to like Season 2 nearly as much as Season 1 because as the first Legacy game I ever played, Season 1 was a unique experience that can't be duplicated. It was like seeing a great movie for the first time, like The Third Man or Diabolique, with no idea what was going to happen. You can see it again, but you can't ever repeat that experience. And yet I did enjoy Pandemic Legacy Season 2 just as much as Season 1. Both seasons of Pandemic Legacy are designed by Matt Leacock and Rob Davio and published by Z-Man Games, Season 1 in 2015 and Season 2 in 2017. Based on the classic co-op game Pandemic, as the Pandemic Legacy games progress, they add new roles, new characters, and new components. Each campaign is a year in the lives of the characters, with a game for each month. That is, assuming you win and don't have to replay the month. Month by month, game by game, Pandemic Legacy gradually, or sometimes not so gradually, morphs into a new game. By the end of the campaign, the game feels like, not quite Pandemic, though still sharing Pandemic's heart-stopping tension and puzzly nature. Like all puzzly games, Pandemic Legacy Season 2 rewards a group that thinks clearly and works well together. It is vulnerable to quarterbacking, so you have to play with people who respect and listen to each other. And at 12 games minimum, you want them to be people you enjoy spending time with. I was lucky enough to have that, and I hope you are as well. All games in the Pandemic series do a good job with inclusion in the character art. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 has great gender diversity and adds an interesting twist. Most of the characters are pictured in bulky outfits that obscure their faces. When you can see their faces, they look like they're covered with heavy red and white makeup. The effect is that instead of seeing a sea of white faces with maybe one person of color, it's difficult to tell what race anyone is. It's refreshing. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 has a less linear approach than Season 1, which I loved. In Season 1, events happen in the same month for all players. Read the Legacy deck for your month, find out what's new that month. You could talk to anyone else who'd played Season 1, just say April or September, and they'd know what you meant. The same things would have happened in that month to you and to them. 
But season two isn't like that. The premise of season two is that 70 years after the events of season one, you've lost contact with most of the world. You start your first game in January with four recon actions, in which you will explore different locations to try and regain contact with that region. The recons are difficult enough that it takes time to do them, and they have pretty major implications to the game, unlocking new areas of the map as well as new rules and mechanisms. Most interesting, the recons can be done in any order. This means that a few games in, my map might look very different from yours. Of course, a campaign of 12 parts can't be totally open-ended. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 does eventually nudge players along, instructing you to open door such-and-so if you haven't yet. And in the final months, it becomes much more linear, with specific events happening each month in a specific order. It's a testament to how well the flexible early months worked, that by November, in my group, we were complaining a bit about the campaign feeling like it was on rails and that we had solved the puzzle. Even though it was essentially a return to the linear structure of Season 1, and we all love Season 1. But if the late fall months of Pandemic Legacy Season 2 didn't challenge us quite as much as we wanted or throw quite as many curveballs, the final game packed a wallop. It had that heart-stopping pandemic tension from beginning to end. And that final objective was such an interesting challenge and so well integrated into the story. I love all flavors of Pandemic, but I have to admit, the objectives are generally a bit arbitrary. You cure diseases by collecting cards. You build structures by collecting cards. I accept that arbitrariness because it's so much a part of Pandemic. It's in the game's DNA. But in this final objective in Season 2, you, the players, are essentially doing the same thing on the board that the characters are doing inside the story. There's a realness to this objective that I don't often see in Pandemic, and it's wonderful. It made that final game feel so vivid. We felt it. We felt our characters struggle and their sacrifice. They felt like people risking it all to save the world. It was the best Pandemic has to offer. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is a worthy successor to Season 1. It has depth and tension, and a story that left me shocked, my mouth literally agape more than once. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not saving the world one card at a time, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Thanks for listening to The 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.